Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Does that sound right? <laughs> that's good, because that's what I have in my notes. <clears throat> my memory's getting bad sometimes. Um, <clears throat> I walked in here earlier for something, got something else and went out. Realized I came in, I had to come back. All right, so that's that's what happens. All right, <clears throat> so today I want to talk to you about the demolition phrase. Andy, this is very loud. I don't know if this is on, but it's very kind of echoey up here. All right, so we're, I'm going to talk to you about the the demolition phase. We're going to read this again. I hope it's not um, a bother to you to read these over and over again. Um, Let me begin with verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at that time were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we looked at some of this last week, um, Last week we spent our time talking about the differences, basically, between the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and we focused on how <clears throat> now the Gentiles were part of the household, and we spent quite a bit of time going over Abraham's call and how all of that went, just so we'd have a um, a background to it. Some of the... <clears throat> um, some of the research I did in pulling all this together, um, and I may have mentioned this last week, emphasized that <clears throat> that there was uh, some sort of animosity going on in Ephesus between the Jew, Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. I, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I know that Paul talks about unity, and we get into uh, <clears throat> chapter 4, that chapter basically uh, <clears throat> emphasizes the unity of the body and how the body grows. 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I think that all of those things are appropriate whether there are Jews and Gentiles together or not, which is why we can read, <clears throat> today we can read chapter 4 and find good things from it because we're, we're, we don't have that particular um, uh, dynamic going on in our, in our culture. <clears throat> so I think what the apostle was doing, and we'll, we'll elaborate on this here in a second, I think what the apostle was doing was saying, look, this is where you were, and then he uses what they knew about Judaism and the Old Testament and how, and how the Jews were and how Jewish believers were to emphasize to these people that they were now part of the body. I almost called this um, forming a church, and there's all kinds of titles you could put on here, <clears throat> forming a church, building a building, constructing a temple, I mean... And I'm sure that down over a couple thousand years, there's been all kinds of sermons preached on all these things. But actually, we're not going to talk about building today. We're going to talk about tearing down. Because our emphasis is going to be on the destruction that Jesus Christ brought to those things that interfere in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with the Father. Now, notice at the very beginning that he... he and I mark in my Bible, so I have all of these marked blue. It says they were separated from Christ. They were aliens from the nation. My, my translation says from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants and promises. They were without hope. And they were without God. Um, MacArthur says that the Gentiles were alienated from God in five ways, and then he goes down through, and that's the focus of his chapter. It's explaining, explaining all of those. And we, we talked somewhat about this last week. What we don't want to miss <clears throat> is that the Jews of Paul's day were also alienated from God. Even though they were members of uh, the nation or commonwealth of Israel as it's here, even though they had the promises, they were still strangers. And you and I are and or were without Jesus Christ. We are all without Christ, separated from God. And we are all uh, with a wall that no man can tear down. You can't tear it down. No one can tear it down for you. There is a wall of sin and separation between the Father and us that only Jesus Christ could deal with. Now this list that the Apostle Paul gives in those verses is, is not a cumulative list. It, it's, you know, it doesn't build from one to another. It's, it's just a description of them. Um, they, they weren't part with Christ. They were not part with Israel. Um, they had no promises and covenants specifically to them, except some general things like in you all the Gentiles will be blessed that the Lord told Abraham. They were without hope. So they had no real help here in this life or in the life to come. And that's why when the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection, he says, we are not like those who have no hope. That's in First Thessalonians 4.13. And he ties it to the resurrection, which, of course, Paul already mentioned here in chapter 1. So, um, we, we see, it, it, let, me go, let me go back to chapter 1, verse 20. He, he, he does it here also. 
He says, um, find it here. And, and the, in 19, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we've been, we've been raised up with Christ. It says, it goes on to say, uh, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name's name, not only in this age, but in the, in the age to come. So we've been raised with Christ and we are put in a place with him. Jesus Christ was raised and we've been given that exalted position also. Um, and by the way, we'll talk about this. He already gave this all to them. So these, these, um, Ephesian believers, wherever they came from, they were they were at the church at the time Paul wrote this, and it was read. They were they were in Ephesus. Um, they had none of the benefits of Judaism. They they didn't have that uh, multiple generations of cultural uh, uh, mindset that came to them from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the things that went on, and the wandering in the wilderness, and Passover, and all the rest of the feasts. They, they didn't have any of that. <clears throat> they were just out here floundering without a real connection to the only true God. No covenant, no promises, no connection to Israel and without God. Now, in chapter 1, Paul has already shown that they are no longer there and that that's no longer their case, that they have promises. And and I'll go back and read all that again, but in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, talks about the promise and the plan. Remember, a plan before the foundation of the world and the inheritance that they were all going to have. So what we see here is Paul kind of going back and forth with them. He emphasizes the blessings of Christ by reminding them of of their past, and then he brings them out of their past, and we're going to see that in the next few verses, back out of that past and back into the present day again, which he does in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. Someone has said um, that the most terrible phrase that that perhaps can be uttered or pondered is one we find here, without God. Um, I'm reading a biography of C.S. Lewis and uh, um, I can't get too far afield here when I get done today and and I know you can all smell food cooking but I'm reading a biography of C.S. Lewis who in his tutelage as he was growing up was exposed to people and had difficulties in his life his mother died and so on and so forth and as a young man was an atheist kind of uh, it's it's amazing because, and it's kind of hard to express, but it's amazing to argue against something you don't believe is there. And the reason you have to argue against and, and convince yourself that it's not there is because there is constant evidence that it is. And at one point in his life, and he talks about it in his in his autobiography, at one point of his life, he realized, you know, this is foolish. So 
without God, what, what do you do? Even, even, and, and my point was there that even the man who says there is no God must believe there is or he wouldn't be arguing against it. So if that's the most terrible phrase, look at this phrase, but now. Interesting, in, in, in chapter 1, uh, uh, we have a, 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 see, was it chapter 1? No, in, in chapter 2, verse 4, we have a similar phrase, but God. So he goes through all those difficulties and he says, but God. You know, here's, here's what you've done, you were dead, but God. And here he says, but now. And so he does this to contrast and, and to, to highlight this contrast. Before you were all, before all you, this is what you had, you had the devil and you didn't, you had all the world, you were not doing what you should, you were living for your own selves, but now you're no longer separated. You've been brought near. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Christ. Because there is no other way. I want to read to you a little passage here from uh, Ironside's little book. He says, But we have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now listen to this. these next, one of the reasons I want to read this. Listen to these next few words and think about modern religion. Not made nigh by the sincerity of our repentance, by the strength of our faith, by the depth of our devotion, by the gladness of our spiritual experience, but, na- but made nigh by the blood. We owe everything for eternity to the precious atoning blood of our blessed Lord. And he who shed that blood, he who died for our sins upon the cross, is himself our peace. And that's part of our passage here today, that he became our peace. So there's there's no other way. And in verses 14 and 15, let me look at these, show the, uh, read these um, again. Uh, well, wrong chapter. Let's get the chat, right chapter here. Um, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So, um, we'll have an opportunity to talk about peace in in more detail at a future time. He says he made both one. And he broke down the wall of separation. He's talking here about Jew and Gentile. Again, Paul is using this, these, this Gentile experience of being separated from God as opposed to this experience of having all these promises and blessings that were given to the Jews to, to, to show something. Um, Paul has still not left the Jew and Gentile theme. The continuation of God's redemptive process as it moves through from Jew to Gentile. He talks about the dividing wall. Um, And there was a literal wall in the temple, past where, in Herod's temple, the temple of Jesus' day, the temple of Paul's day, there was a literal wall past where the Gentiles could not come. Those who were outside the covenant. 
And in verse 14, he says he tore that down. Now, if you stop to think about it, if you think back or maybe look in diagrams in your Bible, you'll, you'll, you'll remember, or maybe if you look at it from this perspective, you'll realize that the tabernacle and the temple was designed to keep people out. And it, and it, it went from outer where most people could come if we, if we think about the tabernacle, it was just, it was just Jews because it was built in the center of their camp, wasn't it? We get into the temple, then, you know, there's, in, in uh, Herod's temple or in Jesus' time, there were Romans and others who could come and go. But the whole thing was designed so that the masses were out here, and the f- closer you got to God, the further, uh, closer, the further you went toward God, the fewer could go. It was designed to keep people out in the the uh, from the court of the gentiles to the place where the jewish males could go was almost 20 steps and uh, the jewish women couldn't go there there was another court for women in herod's temple and it was called the court of women <laughs> amazingly <clears throat> so you you had a place where the the the, the jewish men could go you went down four or five steps, and, there were, and by the way, there were multiple plateaus in this thing and, and different things going on, but the court of women, Jewish women, here, so the Jewish men up here, four or five steps down, and there was a wall, four or five steps down to the court of women, and then there was, there was a, another wall, which was for the court of the Gentiles, and that was 14 or 15 feet more steps. And then about a five-foot wall so the Jewish men could go where the Jewish women were the Jewish women could not go where the Jewish men could go how many of you are following this the Gentiles couldn't get anywhere near that and there was a sign on that wall that said if you pass here you suffer penalty of death Hmm. now if you stop and think further with me, and we'll maybe come back to this. We stop and think further. Once you get past that court of the um, court of the Gentiles, court of the women, and you get to where the, the the Jewish men could go and worship, what was in there? Well, in there was the altar and the laver, and that's where sacrifices were done. And then, after that courtyard was a, a another special building. If you think about the tabernacle, of course, it was all a fence and it was a tent, but if there was another building, and that building was called the Holy Place. And that Holy Place was divided in two. So you've got this outer area where the nations can come, the court of Gentiles, and you've got another area where Jewish women can go, and you've got, a, you've got the real area of worship where the Jewish men can go, and then you've got a Holy Place, and the only ones who can go into the Holy Place are the priests, and they go in there every day according to their... According to their course, when we read the Christmas story, and you're going to read about Zacharias, and it says that he was in the temple ministering according to his course. David set these courses up, divided everything up so that uh, there could be shifts of people moving in there a couple weeks at a time and always taking care of the temple. So Zacharias was in there as a priest, and he could go into that place. But that room was separated from the presence of God by a curtain, they called it a veil, the curtain that they tell us was probably at least six inches thick. 
And it was one piece. It was no little, you know, dealy in the middle. Didn't have cords on it that you could pull back and forth. It was one piece and it was spread there. You know how you got in there? You crawled under it. You had to bow to go in there. Guess who went in there? One man, once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So now that we're in there, let's go back out. High priest can go in there once a year. He comes out of the Holy of Holies into the, the holy place where, where there is altar of incense and candlestick and the showbread table. And the priests go in there and they're in there every day ministering in the morning and evening. They're taking care of things in there. You go out of that room and you go into this large courtyard and that's where the altar is and that's where the sacrifice is given and that's where all the Jewish men come to worship. And then you go to the court of the women and that's where the Jewish women can. And But excluded from all of this was the Gentiles. And all of that was put there by God's design. Now, we don't have time to read all of this, but, but if you go back to the first tabernacle, God showed Moses a, a plan from heaven and said, go build this like this. So it was all there by God's design to show us how holy and unapproachable he is. The only way that high priest could go in there on that one day was through uh, gallons and gallons of blood. Sacrifice for himself, sacrifice for his family. He had to he had to do all of that before he could take a sacrifice for the people. So God put all of this design to say, well, you know. Uh, um, whosoever will, let him come. That's the attitude of the church. Yes, it is. But we must remember when we come that we're approaching a holy God and the only way to approach a holy God that you and I can come is through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, the Messiah. We have no righteousness of our own. We cannot just walk into his presence. In the New Testament, we're, we're told to come boldly before a throne of grace because it was God's grace that killed his son and let his judgment fall on his son and not us it was God's grace that let the righteousness of Jesus the perfect man be attributed imputed on our behalf now let's take a little journey with me okay you guys tired of Ephesians Let's go, let's go, <laughs> turn back in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're going to go back to Acts 19. And why are we going back to Acts 19? Because Paul is writing the book of Ephesians from a Roman prison cell or from a... Um, maybe a rented house in Rome. He is there as a prisoner. He's not allowed to leave. And these chapters explain that story. Paul was two to three years in Ephesus. He was there twice. The second time he was there, we know he was there for two solid years. And when you get to like verse 21... It says uh, in chapter 19, it says, 
After these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And, uh, and he says, after I go there, I must see Rome. Now, that's an amazing thought. If you read about this narrative of Paul and how he got to Rome, um, he, he, he knew he was going to go to Rome. And, it, it's, and though he had to go to Jerusalem to get there, it's just amazing. And then it says there was a riot in Ephesus because the people who made idols of silver were losing their income. When you read the earlier verses before this in chapter 19, I don't have time to read them, but you read this, you'll find out there was such a revival there that people were bringing their occult books and all this stuff, and they had big bonfires, and they were burning all this stuff. And it, and it, it, it changed the culture. And it, it so changed the culture that the people who were making a living off of the idolatry were afraid they're living, they were going to lose their income and, they, and they, they stirred up a crowd and they were going to kill Paul or do something, other, do something nasty to him until he got, he got rescued. That was in Ephesus. And that's in Acts chapter 19. In Acts 20, Paul leaves and he, he goes on his way Remember, he said, I want to go to Rome. And in Acts chapter 20, he, uh, and I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff here. We get down to verse 17. It says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him and he said to them, now I just want to read this, a little passage so you get the tone of it. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. So Paul, Paul wanted to go to Rome. And when you read the book of Romans, which was written before he got there, he, he writes in that first chapter, he says, I've been intending to come and I haven't been able to get there yet, but I still intend to come and see you. So Paul's burden, his desire was to go and see Rome. Here, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And again, we don't have time to read all this, but every place he goes along this stop, they say, don't go to Jerusalem. And so if you go there, bad things are going to happen to you. So at one point, one of the prophets, who was indeed a prophet, I guess, said, took off his belt and bound his hands don't you love illustrated sermons, you know? He bound his hands. I'm glad, I hope it was his and not some poor, you know, I've been to these places. I knew, <laughs> there were certain people that I knew never sit in the front row because they would come down, they'd grab you and they'd do stuff with you, you know? So I just stayed away, you know, you sit in the back. I know why you guys are, I don't do that. You don't have to be afraid. Can't be sure, that's right. So this guy took off his belt, he bound his hands, and he said, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. And they, and they hounded Paul so much so that he said, stop it, you're breaking my heart, and I'm going to go because God wants me to go. Paraphrase. How many are with me here so far? All right. So, 
This is what's going on. He says goodbye to these elders, and they have a, uh, they have a teary farewell in Acts chapter 20. And, but he's still going on. Now, in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to read a little bit of this. Um, he gets to Jerusalem. And, and, and uh, he gives his report, verse 17, he gives his report to the apostles. And let me read a few verses. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us, excuse me, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And And they have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Question mark. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, offering, uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. Apparently it was a Nazarite vow. And they have, they have uh, four of these men who were believers, but who also were obeying Jewish customs. Now that's important. You can read over this and think, well, those are Jews. No, they were Jews, but they were Jewish believers. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. And yet, they were still doing some of these things. And some of them had taken what apparently was a Nazarite vow, and they had to keep their let their hair grow for so long. And at the end of that time, they went in and they went through a ceremony. Ceremony involved... Uh, a sacrifice, and so there had to be some. So they had to buy a sacrifice, and that's one of the things that Paul was was doing. In an attempt to appease these people, these Jewish believers, these Jewish believers had heard that Paul was going around telling all the Gentiles, telling all the Jews that they didn't have to listen to Moses anymore, and so the elders there, you know. Think with me. The elders said, we got an idea, Paul. Take these guys into the temple. And all the Jewish believers, how many were there? Thousands. All these Jewish believers will see that you yourself still do what the law of Moses demands. And then, and then they'll have some freedom. So then they won't criticize you. So, so go and do this. How many are with me here so far? Now, we've got to differentiate. These were not Jew, Jews. These were believing Jews. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I also want to point out that the elders had a great idea. How many have ever had a great idea? No one? 
Well, that's discouraging. <laughs> but maybe your great idea was better than those. It says, when the, seven, there's, when the seven days was almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Now, these were not believing Jews. These were Jewish Jews. Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man is the one who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought them into the temple. And there was a riot. And the Apostle Paul was caught up in this crowd. And it made such a ruckus that the Romans who... (laughs) You know, your church must be pretty rowdy when the police put a police station on it. You know, because that's what they did. The Romans had a barracks there. And they heard it, and they went down, and they rescued Paul. And I can't go into all that today, but they, they rescued Paul. Paul spoke to them, and, and so on and so forth. But they tried to kill him. In, in chapter 22, and we'll read a little bit, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous of God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. And he was talking about believers. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And I've got to stop because I don't have time to read all of this. Go all through it. It, but he talks about here, he gives his testimony. He talks about his conversion experience. He talks about Ananias coming and, and, um, and praying with him. So um, go down to, skip to verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in this temple, I fell into trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Upon this word, excuse me, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow (laughs) from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Don't let this guy breathe the same air we're breathing. He said the bad word, and the bad word was Gentiles. So when Paul talks and writes to the Ephesians, and he talks about a wall of separation being broken down, the Apostle Paul knew exactly what that wall was. He got arrested. Because they thought he brought a Gentile past that wall. Now, let me say a couple things to you about this and get off on just a little bit. We're already on sort of a side road. Let me go down an alley off this side road. Do you suppose that was the elders' plan that Paul would go and be arrested? 
Do you know how Paul ended up in Rome? He ended up going to Rome on a paid trip by the Roman government. And when you read the next chapters here in the book of Acts, you find out that he went to trial after trial after trial. And when eventually he found that he wasn't getting anywhere as a Roman citizen, which was his right, he made an appeal to Caesar. And you'll even find out, if you read this, that the authorities said, well, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could let him go. But since he's appealed to Caesar, he's going to go to Caesar. And they put him on a ship and they sent him off on his way. And it was on that ship that they got in a storm and it was a shipwreck and Paul saved the whole crew and all sorts of interesting things happened on that journey. That was all because Paul went to Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, these elders had a great idea. And I earlier asked you, how many have ever had a great idea? Everyone in here has had a great idea like theirs. Let's go do this. This will solve our problem over here. And instead of it solving a problem, they got Paul arrested. When bad things happen... Sometimes we ask ourselves, who's in charge? And plans fail. I wonder if the elders, James and the others in Jerusalem, said to themselves, oops. I mean, can you imagine that? Maybe they wrote Paul a letter. Dear Paul, we're sorry for what happened to you in the temple. Oops. And then they all signed it. Now, before Paul, based on what we know about the chronology of when these scriptures are written, before Paul ever went to Jerusalem, before he ever went to the temple, he had already written Romans 8.28. It says, all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul knew that at the time he was arrested. After he was arrested and after he was in that Roman prison, he not only wrote the book of Ephesians, but he also wrote the wonderful book of Philippians, which we read earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. I love the book of Philippians. I'm hoping we'll be able to get there one day, but... Chapter 1, verse 12 says, look, he says, I don't want you to be worried about what's going on to me here in, in, because I'm in Rome and you hear I'm in prison because I want you to know that what's happened here has caused the gospel to go forward. It's, the old King James says, the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul was one who knew that trials and troubles and difficulties and frustrations were in somehow the hand of God. That nothing was going to happen to him unless God allowed it. That he was God's servant. And, and he, he addresses himself, you know, God's servant, God's prisoner, over and over and over again in his epistles. So that even though these guys had a plan and they thought we're going to do this and this is going to help us, you know, they got, they got all, they, they, you know, they got all wrapped up in their heads and I, I can't gainsay, I don't, I don't know what was going on. I'm not saying they were wrong. Maybe it was the right thing to do. But the overriding thing that was going to happen was God had told Paul he was going to Rome. 
God told Paul to go to Jerusalem, and, Paul used, and God used Paul's going to Jerusalem to send him to Rome. All right, let me get back on the main, main road here. Paul knew about walls of separation because he experienced it. Paul knew about divisions and factions. Think about it. They only had Jews who hated the Christians. They had Jewish Christians who didn't like the Gentile Christians. And when you read the first few chapters of Acts, you find out that that's when the first deacons or servants came into play because some of the widows were being neglected. They weren't being taken care of. These Jews that were still zealous for the law. And then, and then you had these Jews in the temple who were Jewish Jews who were crazy over their special place that they were willing to kill a man because they thought he brought somebody into it. And what Paul is telling us, if I can get back here to the book of Ephesians, what Paul is telling us is that in Jesus Christ, none of that matters. He tore down the wall. And he tore it down in his flesh. It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I talked to you about that temple and how there was an outer court, court of women, you know, outer court, court of Gentiles, court of women, court, place of worship, the holy place and the holy of holies. Matthew chapter 27 says that when Jesus Christ died, that veil was torn from top to bottom. You can read it in Matthew chapter 27 verse 51. The way was made open to God. The holiness required by God to enter his presence was satisfied because of the death of Jesus, the Messiah. Now let me touch on one more thing here and then we'll, and then we'll close. I'm going to skip on down to verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body. Now, Lord willing, we'll talk more about this building and the body and the building and all that stuff next week. The temple and all of that. But I want us to focus here just for a minute on the word reconcile. Now, there's a lot that could be said about it, but generally it, it, it means... Um, a complete restoration of a broken relationship. It doesn't mean just a truce. Um, it, it doesn't mean that we're going to agree to disagree. Um, it means a complete restoration of a broken relationship that remembers the offense no more. It's completely healed. It's restored I think about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the evening 
complete, open restoration of a relationship with God. Now, there's, again, there's more to it, and this reconciliation was not only with God, it was also with people, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, perhaps next week. The language indicates that this reconciliation is done from above by the offended party. The person on the moral high ground is the one that did the reconciling. And if you stop to think about it, that's really the only way it could happen, isn't it? The person who has done the offense can't say it's okay now okay you can't I, 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 you know as kids we used to do that you know it's okay now isn't it well no it isn't you know it's only the person who's offended that can do it it's really the only way and god though wronged initiated the process so that we could have peace with him and with one another And then we go back to that veil, listen, torn from the top down so that the way was made open. I want to close with this. Whatever great plans you've had that haven't worked out, God's still in control. You may not know what your tomorrow, well, none of us know if we stop to, you know, if we actually stop to think about it. Some of us have some sort of plans. (laughs) We have no way of making those plans happen because we have no way of making tomorrow happen. It's all in God's uh, good, good working and His grace. So whatever great plans you've had that haven't worked out that have caused you to be troubled or harassed or fearful or negative toward others or negative toward yourself, I encourage you to surrender all that to the Lord because He's in charge. If you've been disobedient and got yourself in a mess, then repent. And if we repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us. That's how reconciliation happens. Your repentance, by the way, is not based upon I'm going to do better tomorrow. Your repentance is based upon the fact that you can't do better, that it's all based on the death of Jesus Christ. Whatever you think at this particular point in your life stands between you and God has been taken care of by Jesus. It's not based on what you do. Let me get to the second part of this. If you're trying to win approval, then you don't understand. If you're bargaining with God, say, Lord, I'll do good if you just do this for me. You don't understand. The only way to come to Him is with empty hands. What does the old song say? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We don't do it. We just trust and surrender to Him. In his flesh, he tore down the wall. Would you stand with me?
Heavenly Father, in this uh, broken world, there are all kinds of plans that don't work out. And we, we're, warned, we're warned and instructed over and over again in Scripture to trust you. And, you know, even so far as, as, in a rather poetic way, for the writer of Scripture to say that we make our plans, but God directs our steps. How ironic. I pray you'll help us trust you in all those things. And I, I pray that when those difficult things happen that we'll remember our peace is in you. And that you are the one who tore down the wall. That we can have that trust in the unfailing eternal plan of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because of the work of Jesus the Messiah the Savior on the cross. If when through our trials and troubles or even, Lord, through some other way that brings to mind our failures, insecurities, our weaknesses, help us remember that it's not us. It's not what we do. It's not who we are. It's not what we think. It's all based on upon the finished and completed work of Jesus the Messiah. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.